Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Uh, truly this is, as many have said, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning, our uh, sermon text is uh, verses 13 through 23, 13 to the end of the passage, end of the chapter there. Let's give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant and infallible word. We do this as an act of worship. Now, when they had departed, that is the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the, all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that you fulfill every promise, that it is yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, Christ instructed his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We did that at the beginning of our worship service, didn't we? We are asking the Lord to give us the good things of this life, and not only to give us the good things of this life, but to enable us to enjoy His blessing with those good things. In other words, I don't, I don't want just the good things and not to be blessed of the Lord. I want God's blessing in them first and foremost. In that petition... We recognize our utter dependence upon the Lord. If we are successful in labor, it's because God has provided that success, hasn't he? Think of the words of James chapter 4. Uh, we, some of us will say, let us go down to this city or that city and we'll 
uh, be successful, we'll turn a profit. Uh, but James said instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. If, when you eat lunch this afternoon, if that food nourishes your body, it's because the Lord has provided that nourishment. We become especially aware of our need for Jehovah's provision during times of persecution, don't we? It is in these times that we say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 91 verse 2. The incarnate Christ was also dependent upon the provision of God. Matthew makes this clear in the account of Herod's destruction of the children in Bethlehem. It's an important passage for us. Because we learn that God always provides for those who trust in Him. That the state will never ever prevail over the church of Jesus Christ. And that this one in whom we trust, this Jesus, is one who comes from humble origins. And these humble origins enable him to sympathize with you. This story, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, it breaks down, if you think of this as a play, it breaks down into three acts. We see on the, in the first place, we see the flight of the family to Egypt. And then we see the destruction of the children of Bethlehem. And then finally, we see the return to safety. And in all of these things, reminded of God's faithful provision for His people. First, though, let's see the Lord's provision in the flight of the family from verses 13 to 15. At this point, the, <clears throat> we see uh, Matthew draws our attention to the Magi as they are leaving. And perhaps you, you can see this in your mind. There's the young Joseph and the young Mary and the child Jesus, perhaps a month old or maybe a little older, and waving goodbye to these men who have come and have shared of their treasures to worship the young Christ. And as they're waving goodbye, there's something going on in the back of our minds, though, isn't there? All is not well. There is a tumult just north of us in Jerusalem. And the wicked King Herod has begun his quest to search for and find those who might be competitors to his throne. But God is faithful. And he protects the holy family. He comes to, G to, um, to Joseph. He sends an angel We've seen this before, haven't we? An angel appeared to Joseph in a dream to remind him or to convince him not to leave Mary. Well, here is another revelation to Joseph. God comes to him in a dream. What is the message of that revelation from the angel? The message is quite simple. Go. It is time to go. I want you to notice something that in this revelation to Joseph, when he says, rise and take the child and his mother, and then when Joseph obeys and he takes the child and his mother, something we ought to appreciate here is the theological precision with which Matthew writes. What do I mean by that? 
Notice how Joseph relates, I'm sorry, notice how Matthew relates Joseph to Jesus and Mary. There are no names. Matthew, in his language, maintains a degree of separation just as he did in the very beginning. He wants us to remember, again, he's consistent throughout his gospel that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. We note another thing. As we look to Joseph's obedience to this dream and the message of the angel there, We note the manner of Joseph's obedience. Remember when we looked at, uh, when Matthew opens up in verses 18 and following of chapter 1, he notes the character of Joseph. And I reminded you why that was important. That it was important that the child Jesus, as a man, should have a godly father. Well, do you see where it comes into importance here again? When Joseph receives this dream, when he receives this revelation, how does he obey? Is there hesitation in his obedience to the Lord? Is there an incompleteness in his uh, uh, obedience to the Lord? No. Joseph obeyed immediately. Look at what he did in verse 14. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. We, We notice here... Joseph's complete faith. Did he rise and take provisions? Did he put bundle things into a bag to take with them for this week-long, perhaps longer journey south down to Egypt? We don't know. But what is pointed out to us is that Joseph trusted in the Lord and by faith he stepped out just as we saw from people like Ezra and Nehemiah who've gone before. Not perhaps knowing what the future held for them, but he obeyed immediately and he obeyed completely. We find something here that in becoming the caretaker to the Messiah, Joseph's whole life is subordinated now to the messianic mission. We don't know what his hopes were for his life, what his dreams were for his life and this marriage, what his goals were. They all now become subordinate to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And in this moment, prophecy is fulfilled. Notice in verse 15. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Matthew here is referring to the prophet um, Hosea. One of the beautiful things, if you remember the prophet Hosea, you'll, you'll remember there's this hard obedience that the Lord calls Hosea to. The whole prophecy, the whole book, is a reminder of Israel's adultery against the Lord. These who once were the people of God now are not my people. Those who once were loved by the Lord now are not loved by the Lord. But the story didn't end there. God would reconcile Israel to Himself. He would come again and receive this adulterous people back to Himself and offer them forgiveness through a Redeemer. And Matthew is saying, look, in this work, the Lord is fulfilling that promise. 
And there are a couple of things that we should see here as the Lord is reconciling and beginning this reconciliation to himself. Do you notice where it is that God says, this prophecy out of Egypt I called my son is noted as fulfilled. It is not when the Holy Family returned from Egypt. The prophecy is fulfilled when the Holy Family fled Israel to Egypt. And one of the things that we ought to see in that is that now the land of Israel has become Egypt. It has become a land filled with abomination, filled with idolatry. And it is to this land that Christ comes now to redeem His people, to begin, listen, to begin a new exodus. All of this, this whole scene, unites Christ to the life of Moses. The destruction of the infants. We compare Matthew chapter 2, verse 20, to Exodus chapter 4, verse 19. It was Moses that God, when God appeared to him and said to go back to Israel or go back to Egypt, he said, all of those who sought your life have died. In fact, oftentimes when we depict the flight of the family from Israel to Egypt, it's depicted with Mary riding on a donkey. That doesn't occur here. The reason that occurs is because when Moses went from the wilderness back to Egypt, he took his wife on a donkey. And the early church saw those parallels. So Jesus is the new Moses. Not only is he the Davidic king, but he is the one who would come in the likeness of Moses to deliver the people of God. Another thing that we draw from Hosea's prophecy, Jesus is the true son of God. One of the things that the prophets repeatedly say is that when the Messiah comes, he will lead something like a new exodus. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 16, and, verse, and chapter 31, Hosea chapter 2. All of these things say that the, the, the type of work that the Messiah will do is like the work of Moses. He is coming to do, to perform a new exodus of his people. This incident, it jolts us away from any expectation that the Messiah, that this new Davidic king, that this one who comes in the likeness of Moses, that he will have anything like a lavish upbringing. You think of that uh, the moment when chapter 2 and verse 12 concludes and the, the, the wise men have brought their riches with them, he receives gold and frankincense and myrrh, provision for the journey that's ahead of them. He is a Davidic king. Perhaps, perhaps we're tempted to think, oh, it's going to be like the kingdom of Solomon and kings are going to come and they're going to bring tribute to this one and the worship will begin. 
will immediately, any thought of that is dispelled from our minds. This will not be like Solomon's kingdom. But we see another thing as well. We see the Lord's providential care for His people. Yes, God ordained this persecution of Israel. But He also provided for the protection of Joseph, of Mary, and of Jesus. Were they not sustained by the choice gifts that were given to them by the Magi? He did not spare His Son from any human suffering. God sustained Him, but He did not spare Him. And it is through Christ, ultimately, that Joseph knows the love of God and is enabled to obey the Lord with strict confidence. Next we see the fury of the king. In verses 16 to 18. Notice what Herod's response is in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod, after he's heard from the wise men, we backtrack a little bit, and, and he's become furious. Why did he become furious? Well, because he found out that he had been tricked. You know, the interesting thing about that is that if you remember, we back up a little bit and we see in chapter 2, um, in verse 8, that Herod, when he called the Magi to himself, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod had no intention of worshiping the child. His sole intent was in destroying the child. So now, the one who was trying to trick the deceiver has now become the deceived. And he is incensed with fury. He seeks now to destroy the children in that region. Again, there's an allusion to Moses and the destruction of the Israelite children. Some commentators estimate that there were some 3,000 children perhaps killed in Herod's murderous rampage. Others put the number likely more around 20 or so children killed. Whatever it was, it is noted that this was a minor atrocity in the whole life of Herod, who killed brothers-in-law, killed his wife, killed many other family members. But we are in all of this reminded that Israel has become like Egypt of old. And it's noted for us then that the prophet has been fulfilled. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15. Notice in verse uh, 18. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. As you look at this, you notice how Herod now has become the one who is mocked, the one who is chastised, 
The one who is deceived. You note how sin always mocks the mocker. It is a trait of unregenerate men that they are more offended by the sins of other people than they are by their own sin. The the emblem, brothers and sisters, that we have been born again by the Holy Spirit, that we are truly regenerate, is one emblem. That we make a faithful search of our own sin. That I am faithfully looking into my own heart and asking the Lord to expose the sin that is within me. And I am more concerned about my own offenses, my own sin, than I am about the sin of others. The word is a lamp. But this was not true of Herod, a murderous, unregenerate man, more offended by the sin of others or the perceived sin of others than by his own. Something I want you to note well, though. Here, Herod makes his own diligent search for Christ so that he might destroy him so that he might put to death the kingdom of Christ, any opposition to his own kingdom. And if, any, if ever there was any a moment when Christ's kingdom might be destroyed, surely it was when he was an infant, defenseless and helpless as it were. And yet he was unsuccessful. And do you know, that throughout time, there have arisen many, many earthly opponents to the kingdom of Christ. We think of Pharaoh in his attempt to obliterate Israel. You think of Nebuchadnezzar and the captivity of the people of Israel. You think of Charles IX of France, a Bloody Mary of England, who sought with all their heart to destroy those who would be faithful to Christ. And do you know what all their efforts came to? Nothing. Their kingdoms have vanished. And yet the kingdom of Christ marches on. As J.C. Ryle puts it, the truth rose again from the earth and still lives, and they are dead and moldering in their graves. If you hope, listen, if you hope in anything other than the expansion of the reign of Jesus Christ, history shows that you are hoping in vain. Christ's kingdom will never be vanquished. Yes, there are times of when it seems to to diminish and go away and the light seems to shine less brightly. But listen, if history shows us anything, it shows us that Christ's kingdom can never be vanquished and will ultimately be victorious. And, And what do we see in the text? This very thing. Who died? Who died? Herod. And so lastly we see Verses 19 to 23, the return to safety. Again, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream. After Herod had died, behold, verse 19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Here we see 
we see simple, simple Joseph, a carpenter by trade. And yet in his simple obedience, intending to obey the Lord by doing the right thing and the Lord's provision for him, this man protected from all the might of a Roman king. When Joseph arrived, perhaps to the outskirts of Israel with his family again coming back from Egypt, um, he learned that the political dynamic in Israel had changed. Another king had arisen. Herod had died. But this king, Archelaus, no better than his father, perhaps worse in his first days in, on the throne, killed 3,000 Israelites. And so, Joseph, being a wise man himself, set out for Nazareth, a nowhere town in the middle of nothing, for the protection of his dearly beloved wife and her son. Matthew notes that again, this is the fulfillment of a prophecy. We don't know which one. Matthew says, spoken through the prophets. Some, some have speculated that what we're speaking of here is the fact that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. The only other place that we find that uttered in the Gospels is it's a derogatory term. He's a country boy, a nobody. The Old Testament reference is obscure. Some, some believe maybe he's referring to uh, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 1, where we learned that uh, the Hebrew word for a branch that will come forth out of Jesse's stump. Some relate it to the Hebrew word there, maybe. Some relate it to Judges chapter 13, verse 5, that maybe he would be a Nazarite. Maybe that's a reference to a vow that he would take of holiness. But we know that's not true. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard. Perhaps... Perhaps Nazorian is simply a reference to the humble origin of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, like that little branch, that little nothing that would sprout forth, that no one would notice, no one would see until it begins to grow into a huge oak tree. Maybe that's the reference, that he's going to grow in obscurity. We know nothing, do we? Nothing apart from these few passages of Scripture about his childhood. And even here, he's not even mentioned by name. He's simply the child. Like a Nazarene, he would be despised and rejected. The whole occurrence demonstrates the nature of Jesus' humanity. Look at the humility of your Savior. Nearly all of His life lived in complete obscurity. Do you see that? Nearly all of His life lived being unknown, living in a nowhere town. I remember many, many years ago, uh, 
if you wanted to listen to a particular song over and over and over, you, you had to go somewhere and buy that song. And many years ago, they would sell particular songs on singles. And I convinced my father to take me to the only place that we could buy music, which was Camelot in the mall. And I bought a single. Meet in the Middle, Diamond Rio. Excellent song. The journey, or the, the, the drive from Montgomery to Prattville was about 30 minutes. And so you know how many times you can listen to a three-minute song on a 30-minute trip. But my dad did. We met in the middle over and over and over again. And he said nothing about it. I bring that to your attention because it's an example of humility, putting your own desires last. Christ lived this sort of humility from the very beginning. We are reminded that He stepped out of glory. He put on your flesh. He was clothed in humiliation, lived in obscurity. Why? So Listen, so that you would know that whenever you come to Him and lay your burdens at His feet, there is nothing with which He cannot relate. He loves the humble. We are also reminded that, that who we are, listen, who we are in this world matters far less than who we are in the kingdom of God. Listen to that again. A few weeks ago, we talked about how often we equate success with money and fame. But we are reminded by the humility of our Savior that who we are in this world matters infinitely less than who we are in the kingdom of God. J.C. Ryle again says, it is a great sin to be covetous and worldly and proud, but it is not a sin to be poor. Going on, he says, it matters not so much what money we have and where we live as what we are in the sight of God. Where, where are we going when we die? That matters. Shall we live forever in heaven? That matters. These are the main things to which we should attend. Listen. The King, Christ Jesus, was born into these humble circumstances. He wasn't given a lavish lifestyle. His food did not come on a silver platter. His kingdom is not fundamentally to give you the great things of this life. Listen, but to give you hope in the next. Though Christ's kingdom is an humble one, we ought not to think it is weak. No earthly kingdom will ever prevail over it. That's because His kingdom is not propelled by the power of flesh, of guns, of bombs. His kingdom is propelled by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through the preaching of the Gospel. No administration can stop it. 
And the harder it is persecuted, the more it expands. He has worked. He is working. And will continue to work to build His kingdom until the very end. That is our hope. That is the work we are co-laboring in, Christian. I encourage you, therefore, to pray with Nehemiah this simple prayer. Strengthen my hands for the work. And do not let us lose heart. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our our hope is in your faithfulness. That the same one who brought about the fulfillment of these prophecies, the same one who has brought the Lord Jesus Christ in his humiliation to be our Savior, you are the one who will bring us all the way home. And we praise you that for our salvation, it's all done. That this humble one, this Christ, has fulfilled all the law in our behalf. Help us now to put priorities right. To seek first His kingdom. To seek first that kingdom which has no end. To seek first that kingdom by which we enter through faith. Strengthen our hands, Lord, as we co-labor with one another in the building of this kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.